Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is part three of three special episodes focused on Facebook in the wake of the revelations in what has come to be known as the Facebook Papers, reports based on a trove of documents brought forward by whistleblower Francis Haugen. In the first part, we heard from executive editor of The Atlantic, Adrian LaFrance, who wrote about the challenge Facebook poses to democracy. In the second part, I had a chance to catch up with two people. First, Jeff Horwitz, a technology reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and one of the leaders of the team reporting on the documents first brought forward by the journal. And I spoke to Dia Kiali, a human rights and tech activist and the associate director for advocacy at Mnemonic, for reactions to the revelations in the whistleblower documents and a point of view on what it means for the Oversight Board, the entity the company set up to provide external oversight to its content moderation decisions and to help it make policy. On Thursday, the same day Facebook announced its name change to Meta, I had the chance to speak with two members of the Oversight Board and we're going to hear from them today. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced his intent to create an oversight board in 2018 in a note posted on Facebook. That kicked off a consultation period with experts and civil society groups concerned with issues such as free expression and human rights to determine how best to create the board and set it into motion. The board is financed by a $130 million trust fund that it says makes it independent of Facebook. Board members are contracted directly with the oversight board, which means they're not Facebook employees and accordingly can't be removed by Facebook. The Oversight Board announced its first members in the spring of 2020 and began reviewing cases last fall. It issued its first decisions in January and has just published its first transparency report. The report certainly raises issues with the company's transparency, first with its users. In an announcement, the Oversight Board wrote that, quote, having received over half a million appeals up until the end of June, We know these cases are just the tip of the iceberg. Right now, it's clear that by not being transparent with users, Facebook is not treating them fairly. But perhaps a bigger problem is that the company has, quote, not been fully forthcoming with the board, unquote, in particular on its cross-check system, which the company put in place to review content decisions relating to high-profile users, including politicians, affording them special treatment. The scale of the cross-check program was first reported in the Wall Street Journal. In its report, the Oversight Board wrote that, quote, when Facebook referred the case related to former U.S. President Trump to the board, it did not mention the cross-check system. Given that the referral included a specific policy question about account-level enforcement for political leaders, many of whom the board believes were covered by cross-check, this omission is not acceptable. Facebook only mentioned cross-check to the board when asked whether Mr. Trump's page or account had been subject to ordinary content moderation processes, unquote. The incident underscores concerns raised by many in the tech policy community about how the oversight board can operate in relationship to a company that appears to have such worrying governance issues. And the oversight board has acknowledged this in its report, pointing out that, quote, the credibility of the oversight board, our working relationship with Facebook, and our ability to render sound judgments on cases all depend on being able to trust that information provided to us by Facebook is accurate, comprehensive, and paints a full picture of the topic at hand, unquote. The idea that the company would not be honest with its users or its own oversight board 
is, of course, not inconsistent with revelations in the recently leaked documents, which show Facebook telling the public a very different story than what it knows internally on a variety of matters. We're going to talk about these things in some depth. I was joined in this interview by Courtney Ratch, a Tech Policy Press contributor and board member and an expert on internet governance. And you're about to hear the voices of John Samples and Julia Wono, two board members who themselves have a deep expertise in questions of internet governance, tech policy, human rights, and free expression. Let's get into the discussion. My name is John Samples. I'm vice president at a think tank in Washington, D.C. called the Cato Institute. And I'm also a member of the oversight board at Facebook. Hello, my name is uh, Julia Wono. I'm the director of Internet Sans Frontières, or Internet Without Borders in English. And I'm also a Facebook oversight board member. And last but not least, I am, as of recently, the director of the Content Policy and Society Lab. Thank you uh, both for joining me today. Um, And Courtney, do you want to introduce yourself? My name is Courtney Raj. I am a contributor to Tech Policy Press and generally following issues related to media technology and human rights. First, let's start with the transparency report and its findings. First off, who is submitting appeals to the oversight board and what are they about? Well, uh, everyone can make an appeal, but the transparency report, which I think is a very important thing to do to to let people know what the oversight board is doing, uh, shows that a really large part of the appeals themselves come from uh, two places, North America and Europe, something like uh, well over two-thirds, somewhat over two-thirds of all the appeals come from that. In our report, our staff has also estimated that about a third of the appeals related to the hate speech rules, uh, another third, just under another third related to bullying and harassing rules, and then following well behind is uh, Facebook's rules on violence and incitement, where which are only uh, 13%. Adult nudity and sexual activity was 9% of the appeals. And I would say also there's a category called dangerous individuals and organizations that are uh, not permitted on the platform or mention of them. And that took up about 6% of the cases. So uh, that gives you a sense of where, at least at this period, that we're talking about, which goes down to the middle of last year, or this year, I'm sorry, middle of 2021, it gives you a sense of who is using the appeals process very generally speaking. Can we talk about just the volume, just to give folks a sense of, you know, the overall volume here? You know, looking back over a year, you say, what what surprised me joining this board and the things we've done? What, what was different? How have I changed? And I have to say that 500,000 appeals really points to something else, which is that it's estimated that uh, Facebook has upwards of uh, almost 3 billion users on a regular basis. Those users uh, cross uh, time zones, cross international borders. Uh, They claim about 200 million in the United States, but that's only a drop in the bucket in a way for that larger number. And I guess I would say that one of the things that has struck me the most clearly about our experience is the the problem of scale. I mean, intellectually, it's one thing to to understand that the numbers are the numbers, but uh, trying to govern and uh, police the platform uh, that has that much activity on it 
is really striking. I mean, one thing I always tell people that they find surprising is that 6 million, 6 million false accounts are destroyed every day, largely, of course, and almost completely by algorithmic methods, because they violate the authenticity rules of Facebook. These numbers are just really, (laughs) it's a human thing, but it's hard to grasp them, I think, for uh, everyone. And in trying to do this job, that has come back to me again and again, how many people are involved, which is a great thing. It's great that so many people have a printing press, as it were, but it also makes the regulation, self-regulation of the platform by Facebook quite difficult. Truly, any any uh, observation like that from you, just in terms of the scale or the or the nature of what's coming through? I, I have to say, I'm happy also to share my very personal experience here. I was actually very surprised uh, when we started doing this work. I was actually very surprised of yes, the the amount of content that's published. I mean, we do imagine that there is a lot, uh, given the instantaneity of the publication process, but. It's, it's different when you hear it from technical experts within the company who, who talk about billions of, of content published each day and millions of decisions made in a matter of a second, either automatically or through human review. So I'm sharing this because this, I think, has helped the, well, this understanding has helped the work of the board, especially through the recommendations that we make. We, we've been from a stage where, where at the beginning, when we started accepting cases in October 2020, the conversations around the scalability of our recommendation was not as central as they have become, because we want to make sure that whatever we tell the platform it should do, well, the platform can actually do it and can make it operational. If you look at some of the public conversations that have happened around the recommendations we make to the company. So like I was saying, we make recommendations, the company has 30 days to respond and there are different responses that the company can make. One is we will fully implement this, which is, and they explain how they will do this. The second is we will partially implement or we will not implement. And the we will not implement part was extremely informative uh, for, for the board, uh, because it helped to highlight some of the, the diversity and the spectrum of uh, implementation and decisions that have to be made from the point of, you know, changing the policy to making and, and enforcing it and changing a design feature, for instance, on, on the platforms, Facebook and Instagram. So yes, the scale aspect is important. And it's, very, it, I understand it might be difficult, especially from a user perspective. I mean, you're faced with your content being taken down, with your account being blocked, I mean, frozen for a week or even more. Uh, you're faced with the loss of revenues that can re- result from that. We don't talk about that as much, but we should also. So it's it's very difficult to, to think about scale issue, but it is, it is nevertheless part of the conversation increasingly, and we're, we're trying to, to better understand this and, be a, and offer better responses with regards to that. Just before we move on from kind of the, the scale and scope, you know, one of the things that really stands out is how dominated Europe and North America are in the cases that were taken to the board. And yet we know that 
you know, Facebook has been identified as partially responsible for inciting genocide in Myanmar, for instigating farmer protests in India and being involved in that whole effort. Um, You know, when the Taliban took over in Afghanistan, social media played a really important role there. Uh, And at least, you know, 70 countries around the world are engaged in information operations, most of which take place on Facebook, according to the Oxford Internet Institute. And then, of course, there's the, you know, Philippines, where Maria Ressa, a journalist with the Philippines, who was just awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her work, has constantly pointed out the the dangers that Facebook poses in her region. And yet we see that Asia uh, only made up about 16.5% of the cases, the Middle East only 7.8% of those cases. We know that Palestine and, and the Palestinian Israeli conflict has been a flashpoint in content moderation. What does this tell us and what does the board want to do to equalize out um, the ability for the entire world where, you know, Philippines, 98% of the population is on Facebook and it is the equivalent of the internet. Those figures, the fact that most of the appeals came from users located in the United States or this North America and, and Western Europe is indeed not a reflection of the user base of the company. We know now that Uh, more than 70% of Facebook users are not based in the United States, Canada, and, and, well, North America. What does this mean for us, for the Oversight Board? I think it means that we need to be even more engaging with communities around the world which have an interest in having issues of moderation and uh, and society, Uh, having these issues being touched upon, addressed by the board through its principal decisions and through its recommendation. We recently received and accepted to work on a case related to the conflict in Ethiopia. For the audience, there has been a conflict in the country, which according to some reports, is also a conflict along ethnic lines. So there is a minority which allegedly is subject to ethnic cleansing. I'm using allegedly varying intentionally here because this is also a part of the world where there is very little information for various reasons, including because there is a communications blackout. There is no internet at the moment in the region affected by the conflict. The board has, I would say, I mean, I will be very strong here because this is extremely important for us. We are really working hard to continue to uh, go to this, to those groups, to those experts, to those communities uh, that probably are not aware as much about the this opportunity that is offered uh, for various reasons. First of all, we know that there is a language problem on, on, on Facebook. We know that community standards are way more translated. Content generally that is issued from the company is mostly often available in the most spoken languages, or at least the ones internationally recognized, and I'm thinking specifically about English, about French, and other languages. But that is not the case in, well, recently we had a decision that touched upon Punjabi. Punjabi is a language in which, which is spoken by 130 million users, and community standards are, were not available in that language until now, until the board made a recommendation to the company and the company accepted to take it into account. So 
if we don't have the community standards available in all the languages, or at least as consistently available in all the languages, imagine for such a new body such as the, the oversight board. We do make sure, and especially when we make a decision that concerns a particular community, we always make sure to have that decision translated in the language. So in the case that I was mentioning, Punjabi, it was a case that we received from a user in India whose publication had been taken down by the company for, I think, a hate speech violation. And we told, well, we translated our decision in Punjabi to make sure that users in that language could understand it. So it's a work in progress. We need to do way more. Uh, we have open hours offices that we organize. I was part of one that focused on West and Central Africa, but there are many others happening around the world because the, the board is also very diverse. We have representatives in, uh, in the US, in Latin America, Asia, Africa, Europe, and virtually, well, all the continents around the world. So this is really on top of the agenda for the board looking forward. To add to that, Julie's uh, remarks, all of which I agree with, is that I, we have the, something called a case selection committee that um, decides, sort of pairs down the, the cases to decide which ones will go to the board on the binding side of things. And I can assure you and your listeners that that committee is very aware and committees, it's more than one uh, group, is very aware of this, that uh, you know there's a larger world out there and that we need to be looking for cases that you know, uh, present a good trade-off, uh, uh, essential questions in other parts of the country, uh, other parts of the world that, you know, and, and that's important because we foresee this as a long-term enterprise and we want to build legitimacy because content moderation is something that cannot be avoided, right? It, it just cannot be avoided. And it needs to be something that people can live with, can agree with, and can feel like is fair. And also we're doing, uh, if not perfect justice, at least doing a good job. And you can't do that if you're only looking, again, at part of the user base. And we should really see ourselves, I think, as representatives of the users. The other thing I would say quickly is, you know, for me, I've worked all of my life in the United States. I've been about one thing, really, about the institutions of the United States and about its First Amendment. For me, I think I, the problem is really to stretch because the Facebook is not, Facebook is chartered in the United States, but it's not an American company. It stretches, as I mentioned, 200 million users here, but there's 3 billion worldwide. And so the stretch is to not think of everything exclusively in American terms, right? That, uh, and that means a couple of things. The Facebook's values and the charter values of the board are great values. They give priority to freedom of speech, to what is, what is called voice. Those are great values, but they're not American values, right? They are American values, I hope. But they go, I think they're, they're values that are important for all of, of the world and particularly also for the people that are on Facebook. But making judgments about them requires knowledge of context. So it means you have to know more about the world and not just say, well, we would do it this way in the United States. That's not enough. You have to go beyond the borders and think and see the world, I think, through other people's eyes. I do think we'll end up 
with uh, free speech winning out because I think free speech in almost all the cases is the best policy for democracy, for people. But it's not because it's an American value or because it's in the American constitution. It's because it's the best policy. It's been shown to be by history and I'm hopeful we're gonna be part of that history going forward. Well, so leaving aside the question of free speech and whether that exists on Facebook, let's continue on this question around kind of the board and get a little bit more into that. Because I think that, you know, there has been some criticism from some circles about the selection of the board and the fact that Facebook was involved in that. But looking at the process that they spent more than a year literally going around to different parts of the world, holding these consultations with, you know, hundreds of civil society members and experts on this and resulted in 20 members um, of the board who are quite diverse. And I think, you know, really experts in their areas, many of whom are pillars in the community, um, both in terms of freedom of expression, but more broadly, technology, human rights, et cetera. Some of those fundamental values that you were talking about, John. Um, So I think that that is interesting. And my understanding is that the board is going to grow to 40 members and that those board members will be appointed by the trust uh, and that the company isn't involved in, in picking new me- members. But can you just talk briefly um, so we can get on to some more of the meaty questions, but like, just tell us a little bit what's happening with the board. How are those members being selected and what, if any role is Facebook going to have and, and kind of what's the timeline here? So there is a, according to the bylaws, uh, which I encourage your listeners also to, to read if they haven't done so yet, they're available on our website. According to the bylaws, there is a membership committee that's created within the board and that is composed of board members. Those board members uh, will work with the support of the board administration. We also have a full staff administration full-time administration staff uh, that supports our diverse work that we have to do. So from decision-making to also membership committee selection. And so with the support of the administration, we receive candidacies or we we identify potential candidacies that could be uh, interested. There are several several channels for that. Uh, There is a portal that's out there, which people can recommend experts. Uh, we also, as board members, are, you know, aware of people and, you know, discussions and expertise. And so there are different, there are different channels. And so what happens is that the membership committee shortlists candidates and then submits them first to the, to the board and to the, to the trustees, because we are also, we have a governance on top of us that oversees that we are doing our job and also uh, overseeing the activities and the efficiency of our activity. So where does Facebook come into play here? We are very deliberate in making sure that the membership committee is the one in charge of that selection as per the bylaws. We are mandated by the bylaws to to follow this process through the the membership committee. And yes, that's what I can say. And also uh, we are very deliberate on making sure that First of all, the diversity, well, diversity is central to the oversight board. I mentioned that geographic diversity, but there is also professional diversity. We have tech policy experts. We also have law professors. We also have uh, human rights uh, activists. I'm one of those. And, and we have lawyers and so many other types of profiles. And so we also want to make sure that the next members that will join us can 
add to that diversity of expertise, touching on several issues that are very pressing for the for the platform. So we really are keeping an eye on and we with the help of our administration, once again, keeping an, an eye on where are our weaknesses in terms of expertise or where we do much better? What are the preoccupations from the public with regards to harmful content and Facebook, Instagram? And uh, yes, that's pretty much what guides our discussions. You know, you both have mentioned the importance of the charter and the bylaws. And the, the charter requires that Facebook provide information reasonably required for the board to make its decisions. Now, let's go back to the, you know, the transparency report that the Facebook Oversight Board recently released. The headline on this report really was that Facebook has not been entirely forthcoming with the Oversight Board, in particular that it seems to have misled the Oversight Board around cross-check, which is kind of its idea um, related to public figures and, you know, those high-profile VIPs on the platform. Has Facebook abrogated its commitments? And what's going on here? Can you delve into that a bit for us? Well, I can assure you that we are aware that uh, there's an issue here about uh, that particular uh, program of Facebook about cross-check. Going into it, when we, this uh, first came to light in a sense, with the uh, Trump case. And going into that, we had asked them about uh, programs that the, or efforts they were making and whether there was actually, you know, some figures on the on some users had uh, more protections and some questions of that nature. In the case itself, well, we didn't receive information on that. Um, but this program existed. And then uh, we also, you know, there's an issue about the size of it and how, how many people it covers. Uh, and it was somewhat imprecise, but it was thought to be a, a small number. And we later discovered that it was uh, almost 6 million uh, users were uh, there. So what we can say about this without setting down any final conclusions is it's very important that we, uh, well, the general issue, there's many issues here. Uh, there's transparency to the board and to the world about uh, these issues. Uh, but it's also a working relationship, right? And as we go forward, if we are to do our job, and part of our job, I think, is to make, you know, to help Facebook, to make them a better company and, and better responsive to the more, more responsive and useful to their users. If we're going to do that job, we have to trust the information we get from them. So we will be pushing that issue. They, we've, we've said that to them, uh, and they have asked us and we, uh, to, uh, for advice on this particular cross-check program. Really, it's part of their uh, way they apply the rules, uh, and we have taken that up. And so I expect in uh, the near future, not sure exactly when, but in the near future, we will have something to say about that. One more thing about that. You mentioned earlier about some of the type of content, you know, mentioned dangerous organizations. That's a category of content that can lead to removal. There was recently a leak by The Intercept of the list of, you know, what Facebook considers dangerous organizations. Was that ever provided to the Facebook Oversight Board? And do you think that, you know, Facebook should be more forthcoming and not just rely on whistleblowers and journalists to inform the public about some of these really important issues? I'm happy to to, to answer this one because the issue of dangerous organizations and the the list particularly was on the board agenda as soon as we started accepting cases. 
I think we had one case at the very early stages of uh, you know appeals coming in that referred to that policy. As a reminder, it was a case in which a user reposted a publication from I think two or three years ago in which the user was quoting, well, using a quote attributed to uh, Josef Goebbels, Hitler's Minister of Communication. And what, well, the Facebook took down the publication for you know, violation of dangerous organization policy because the Nazis, I mean, we are not allowed to talk, well, to praise, not to talk about, to praise the Nazis and other dangerous organizations on the platform. So what was interesting there is that that's where we started asking the company, how are you making this list? And is that list an information that could interest the public? So there there are certainly uh, some difficult aspects with regards to the platform because some of the responses we've received is we want to make sure that bad actors cannot gain the system once that information is, is public. Uh, but the oversight board has historically always pushed for transparency at Facebook and Instagram. We've always tell, told them, if you're more transparent, if you treat your user more fairly, if you treat them with clear rules, if you treat them in a consistent way, that is to say, you're applying the dangerous organization to the Nazis and to the, I don't know, the Taliban's, but you don't apply it to the QAnon, you know, that's interesting. So we've been telling them always that be fair, transparent, have clear rules so that your users can better know what is a praise uh, and how to avoid being you know, how to respect the rules uh, and also know what are the organizations that are that they're not allowed to, to praise or to, I mean, which they should be careful when they talk about on the platform. So yes, the board has always been very deliberate on asking for more transparency and fairness from the company on that particular issue. That's only one side of the equation, right? So it's great to know all the effort that's being put into the, by the board into figuring out these decisions, grappling with this, trying to get more information from Facebook. But the other side of the equation is how do you translate the board's decisions and its oversight into actual implementation? A, how does that process work? And, you know, from from what I understand, there is somewhat of a gap and a challenge with implementation. I believe there's what one Facebook person who is, you know, tasked as a liaison with the board, maybe more. Um, I believe there was a case where moderators were incorrectly moderating content according to a, you know, two-year-old rule. So how does, you know, this really important work where you put a lot of thought and energy into this actually then get translated back into Facebook's policy and its content moderators, especially when they're spread around the world, you know, hired by consulting firms and third parties. Do you know anything about the process of implementation? Yeah. So the process of implementation actually has two aspects to it. Remember, we make decisions about particular cases that was Facebook right or wrong when what they did first. And then we make policy proposals, policy advice to Facebook. So there's two aspects of it. The binding part is the decision in a particular case, right? We say one particular case, it either goes back, the content goes back up more likely, or perhaps it comes down. Uh, But the important thing is not that, actually. Remember, the important, in a sense, the important thing is. Will this decision be applied to parallel cases? So like in the US court system, 
there is a important thing about the Supreme Court decides, but it gets applied across all the government, right? And about other and future court cases. For us, there's this gigantic platform. We need Facebook and face, I believe they want to, they uh, to apply it to what's called parallel cases. So that's the first thing. Uh, and they've agreed to in the original um, uh, charter and original agreement. The second part, the policy advising is uh, we can give it and Facebook has to respond to it, but they're not obligated to carry it out. Now, let me say this is something about the board that I've observed, which is uh, people are come from often an academic background and one thing or another. This is a group of people that want to be practical, too. They want pragmatic results. They want to make a difference here. We're here spending time on this, trying to make a difference to, and on behalf of users and other people affected by Facebook. And that means you have to find out to what extent have the, the first issue is to what extent has Facebook actually carried this out, either in the parallel cases, which grow out of our binding decisions, or also in the policy advice. So we have set up a committee uh, to do that. And the committee has met with uh, the Facebook group, uh, part of the Facebook teams that do that. In fact, Facebook uh, seem to have dedicated uh, at least five or six fairly uh, high-ranking ind individuals, certainly they were very capable individuals, to this task of how do we go about this? How can we give you information? How can Facebook give the board information? And, how, and we're trying to set up criteria and metrics, all that kind of, you know, it doesn't make it into the headlines, but it's very important over time if we're going to actually observe concrete results and know that we've made a difference. And we really do want to make a pragmatic difference here. If I could just rapidly add to this. Thank you so much, John. And I really like the, the idea of you know reminding this is working process. But also, uh, this is a very new part of the Facebook Oversight Board. The implementation working group was not in the charter, was not in the bylaws. So here we have our body who is trying to be as agile as possible in order to make sure that we fulfill the mission for which we were asked to sit on this board. Beyond making the recommendations, beyond taking the decisions, how are we making sure that this is really impactful? And I, I mean, we'll see with the, the implementation working group, but I would like to speak to some of these impacts. For instance, we've asked in May, in the decision published in May, uh, to the company to translate uh, the community standards in Punjabi. I talked about it. The company said it would do it by the end of this year. In August, we've agreed to, um, well, the company agreed to provide information in its transparency center, a brand new center that did not exist before. If you're a user, you can type, I think, fb.transparency.com uh, and you will have uh, access to that center. And they agreed to provide an information on content removed for violating community standards following a formal report by a government agency, including the number of requests. This is extremely important because this recommendation from the board came within the, the uh, Al Jazeera case, which referred to the Israel and Palestine affair and, and conflict. I, I would like to, to specify that numerous reports at the time alleged from external stakeholders and which the oversight board has also read and also has received through its public comments because one thing that I would like to specify is that when we receive a case, we open a window for public comments coming from users or also any organization that has interest on the case. So we receive public comments alleging that there is a 
a unit within the Israeli government that does precisely this, that sends reports of community standards inf uh, infringement and uh, asks Facebook to take action on those. This information was not public. Last but not least, still on the impact of the work of the board, uh, in October, so that's very recent, Facebook said it would fully implement our recommendation for an independent audit uh, into uh, whether the content moderation systems of the company in Hebrew and Arabic were biased, right? This is also a very important uh, impact of the board. So just to say that, yes, we are really keen on tracking the impact of the recommendations that we make and the cases that we decide on. Uh, and we are also put, well, we do not shy away from putting in place the necessary uh, bodies internally within the board, even though they were not provided for by the bylaws. We do not hesitate to innovate and be a child uh, with regards to what we observe in the world that we live in. Appreciate that. And, and I appreciate that you all are grappling with these very complex issues in a very complicated moment, not only in the world, but for the company. I mean, you know, to start off with an insurrection in the United States um, and then now to be in this uh, whistleblower period where I want to kind of move the conversation in that direction. Um, you know, despite Mark Zuckerberg dismissing these revelations as a, a coordinated effort to paint a false picture of the company, which is how I think he put it in the earnings call earlier this week. It does feel like Facebook itself is in a moment of crisis, um, an extreme moment of crisis. How has the release of this information changed the oversight board or how has it been received inside the oversight board? How will it, it change what it means to be an oversight board? A lot of people are concerned you know, about how the company is handling this very highly con uh, consequential matters including members of the board. I mean, we are also citizens. We're also a member of the public. We're also Facebook users, uh, full disclosure here. But uh, they, they pose serious challenges, obviously. And we will, I mean, it's also the company's responsibility. But what I want to reiterate here, which is extremely important for the listeners uh, and the general public to understand about our work, is that we have repeatedly told Facebook that it needs to be far more transparent and treat its user fairly, including as recently as, well, last week with the transparency report, which I, again, encourage as many people as possible to read. And we will continue to do that, to demand more transparency from the company, to assert our authority uh, and improve how, well, continue to improve how users are protected or feel protected on this, on this platform, which, yes, is important. I mean, it's discussion is important. There, there are lots of countries, even in Ethiopia, as we're talking now, I was mentioning a, a communications blackout. Uh, many users in Ethiopia rely on Facebook and on WhatsApp and other social media to have information with regards to what's happening there. Because of, on top of the communications blackout, human rights organizations have very difficult access to that region. So just to say that the board is extremely focused, even more now, but we've always been since day one, focused on bringing greater accountability, greater transparency, greater consistency and fairness to content moderation approaches at Facebook and at Instagram. Thanks. Uh, I would say in addition to that, uh, with regard to the, the most well-known uh, whistleblower right now, Frances Halden, uh, the board has asked to meet with her and uh, she has agreed to do so. And uh, we don't know, I, I don't know, and I think we don't know yet exactly when that will happen. However, uh, we, we look forward to that. And I think uh, 
both about that and the question of how uh, she, a whistleblower, would change the board remains fairly speculative. That is, I'm not sure until we uh, go through the next bit, even how to make a good guess about that, right? We will continue to do the job we've been hired to do. I'm confident of that. Uh, but I think beyond that, we've got uh, this specific event. It, it would just be too speculative. So I want to dig in on this just a couple of ways. Um, you know, there are a couple of things that have come out of the the revelations from, as you say, you know, multiple whistleblowers in the uh, last a few months, but especially uh, most recently from Francis Haugen. They do relate to some of the things that the board has requested from the company. So one particular event is January 6th. Um, so the oversight board did recommend to the company that it conduct a, a full review uh, of its role. A, the company chose to, as it said, I believe, implement that recommendation only partially. And you know, more recently, though, we've had these kind of two incompatible things happening at once. You've had Nick Clegg, Monica Bickert, uh, others at the company downplaying uh, the role of Facebook in January 6th with the Facebook papers uh, suggesting the company was very aware of its substantial role um, in what happened that day. So I don't know if, it, if, is that a lens through which to kind of look at the relationship between the board and transparency on these matters? Um, do, do you feel that, that that kind of, I don't know, points to a problem in that, that they're able to kind of reject your uh, recommendation for more scrutiny on that topic. The fact that you're aware that the board has asked Facebook to be transparent on its role is a proof, another yet another proof that the board does not shy away from asking questions. We do not receive all the responses, but we, we, we ask the questions and we ask for more uh, disclosures from the company uh, meaningful disclosure, that is. And in this case, we specifically ask the company to audit its potential role in um, the, the events of January the 6th. So I would say that we continue to do that and we will continue to make sure that those conversations, to lift the, the lid that's current, that until very recently existed on content moderation issues, we will absolutely continue to do that. And um, our, our upcoming decisions will continue asking hard questions. We may not receive all the responses, but at least the conversation is happening. And that already is a big, big step, especially when it comes to content moderation. So I would just add to that, that it, it and it will sound somewhat technical, but it, it's true. I'm sure that, as Julie says, there's a willingness to deal with these issues and with transparency and indeed any issue that comes up. Uh, but it has to come up first in the form of a, a case, right? There has to be something, an appeal that's accepted and a dis, our deliberations, which are really deliberations, go around a specific set of circumstances. And then we go out from that. We can give policy advice connected uh, to, to a particular set of circumstances. But at the same time, it's not true that we're, and that, and that policy advice can be wide ranging, don't get me wrong, but we're not a general improvement device for Facebook in which we can say they've done this particular thing wrong, uh, even though we might think that and go to them and order them to do, or even suggest they do something. It has to come up in a specific set of circumstances. But as Julie says, you know, 
One thing I would conclude from the last year, from the internal experiences I've had, is the word independence is one that appears most often in our charter and our bylaws. And these people that uh, are my colleagues, they really want to live up to that. They really do. And so whatever, if it comes in the right format, you can be sure that what Facebook wants is not going to be what drives what we do. That's uh, heartening to hear. <laughs> I think for many of us, uh, you know, there are many people around the world, critics of the board who have, you know, certainly used the revelations this week, in some cases to resurface the point of view that the oversight board is a fig leaf for a company with enormous governance problems that, you know, with the founder and CEO in this unimpeachable position, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, where he can't be held accountable, that there's no real possibility of governance with teeth. They get also, you know, the fact that you have all of these whistleblowers and research being done inside the country company that does not result in actual change. You know, we're hopeful that the board's input will be, but I'd like to ask about your role in this context but also want to acknowledge that there are those who are sympathetic to the oversight board's mandate and, you know, often cite its value, if for nothing else, as an experiment that could teach us important lessons about how to make exceedingly hard decisions about content moderation that could prove useful in some future world where, you know, Facebook doesn't exist or just as a form of, you know, governance in this new information ecosystem and, you know, this multi-stakeholderism, which is definitely an insider term, but hey, we have a lot of insiders listening to this podcast. Um, I think, you know, this idea that having people outside of the company involved in making those decisions is an important principle. So, you know, how do you view your role in the context of these revelations? And what are you hopeful that you can accomplish in the direction of making this an important experiment in content moderation and internet governance? I would say that our role here, just like in, in any other time, just like since we've started, is to continue to push for accountability, for transparency, for fairness, for equity, for consistency towards users by the company called Facebook, and particularly on its two main platforms that are Facebook and Instagram, social media platforms. For me and for us, the, that role is, is clear. And also uh, what we've learned, of course, from the multi-stakeholder approach, which means how to bring different stakeholders at the same table to work together towards the same aim here. Uh, the aim is to make sure that we mitigate harmfulness on social media platforms on two of those, Facebook and Instagram, in a way that's respectful of our human rights and particularly freedom of expression, freedom of speech. And I think that personally, being at the board has enriched my knowledge of what is possible to do with multi-stakeholderism in this very complex, in these very complex issues that we're trying to address. There is no way one person has the solution. There is no way one group has a solution. There is no way one country has the solution. And that's why the board is as professionally, geographically, gender diverse as, uh, as it is. And uh, I, I'm hopeful and I'm confident that with the help again of our administration, we will continue to explore the extent to which multi-stakeholderism, having external observers, including those that we rarely hear from or hear about around the world. And that again, goes back to your first question, Courtney, related to uh, you know making sure we're 
seeing the globality of the platforms and the globality of, of its users, including those voices that we rarely hear in those conversations. So that's what I'm looking forward to personally. So the one thing I would say about this, and I would uh, direct your listeners to, because I think it's very interesting, is to what extent, you know, Facebook, as I said, is huge. It goes across borders. So where do you find the norms and laws and so on, apart from pure philosophy for that? And one of those answers is international law or international human rights norms or whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure we'll end up as an enforcer of uh, those international law of some, of, in some version, but we might. Or we might use that to, in a ways that apply it uh, for the new digital realities that Facebook poses. But it's very striking to me that this new reality of transnational platforms involving speech and many things, politics, that the possibilities, I think, and relevance of international human rights norms may become strikingly uh, relevant and I think, you know, holds out real possibilities to make the world a better place. And, you know, that's coming from somebody that's lived in Washington, D.C. for 30 years. I'm not exactly a wild eye innocent, but I do think there's possibilities there. Well, we want to thank the two of you for taking the time to talk to us today, um, to answering some not easy questions, not simple questions on not simple issues uh, with such earnestness. So very grateful. And I must tell you that um, while we've been on this call, Facebook has changed its name. Um, so it will now be Meta going forward. Um, well, so, your fault, Julie. Was something you said, no doubt. <laughs> so yet another... Uh, 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 wrinkle to the events of the week. You know, foresight to not name it the Facebook Oversight Board, but rather simply the Oversight Board. So uh, you don't have to go and rebrand. So that's good news. But thank you both for joining us today, uh, John and Julie. And thank you, Courtney, for, for joining me for this. Thank you for having us. That's it for this special episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You could write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.